This morning, our teens read to us one of our ancient stories. In it, an angel, a messenger of the God voice, visits Mary with some really bad news. You're in a pickle, sister. You are about to become a social pariah. You are going to spend the rest of your days raising eyebrows. You're going to spend the rest of your life being subject to snickers and to slurs. It is not going to go well for you. But I'm here to ask you to walk this path anyway. There's more to it than the cost it will exact of you. There is something that of hope in this request. Your baby will grow to be an instrument of divine life will show people what the divine heart looks like. Your baby will usher in a different kind of kingdom, the God kingdom. The underlying intent of what David's kingdom was about will be realized in him. The promises that were made to Abraham so long ago will be realized in him. The promises that were made to Jacob so long ago will be realized in him. And the people will experience the divine in your baby. But it will be costly for you. It will shame you. It will hurt you. And I'm asking you to walk this path. So that text is being read across the globe today. That text is being read in every time zone as people gather today to prepare ourselves in this season of Advent. Now our community's focus of Advent this year is a focus on that word hope. And last week we began with some very comforting news we said that our ancient seers were able to see something that is so easily missed by most of us. And in that understanding of hope, they said, the hope resides in you because the Spirit of God is in you. Always, irremovably, irrevocably, the Spirit of God is within you, so consequently hope resides within you. Now, the spiritual life, the spiritual path, is not about going somewhere outside of ourselves in order to get hope and then bring it to ourselves. It is not about somebody giving us some good news so that we can hope in it. It's about an ancient way. It's about a set of ancient practices, a set of ancient truths, some time-tested disciplines, all of which are purposed to help us awaken to the hope that is within us. And then we looked at some of the historical context and some of the political context in which 1st and 2nd Isaiah wrote to us, and we realized that rooted in this abiding sense of the indwelling process of the divine, that the message of the pe to the people was, when you awaken to this reality within you, you awaken to a set of ways, a set of practices, a way of relating to one another, a way of relating to your exterior world. And so not only does your interior life change, but as a critical mass of us catch on to this 
awakening reality, the society around us, around us begins to change. And our external worlds change as well. And so, he began, comfort, comfort my people. Be comforted in this reality that his hope is always within you. And no matter how awful things look, and they looked really awful, you'll recall. No matter how awful things look, that reality is always within you. You can always experience that process of reawakening, and that process will always bring you to a reordered life. So comfort, Isaiah. Comfort, my people. Well, today, we're still talking about hope. But this is a lesson that translates the interior reality into our external worlds. We're still thinking about hope, but this lesson will feel decidedly uncomforting. It can actually feel the opposite, can feel very challenging. For hope, it turns out, comes with a cost. The manifestation of that reality that is within us, as it translates into our worlds around us, comes with a price. And those who pay it, pay dearly. The story of Mary follows a very familiar pattern in our biblical texts. It's the way that the divine kingdom often works. There is a dream that is set before us. There is a possibility that is set out before us. There is something to which we awaken, some vision, some sight that we didn't have before, and we get a glimpse of us, and it is beautiful. It is like a dream that has not yet become manifest, and there is a sense of hope attached to that dream. Because when hope is manifest in the world around us, it is a beautiful thing. Jesus used the term, the kingdom of God, to describe this reality where enough people have absorbed the interior awakening that they begin to relate to one another on the basis of that interior reality, and they live out in an exterior form the interior transformation, and it changes the dynamic of a culture. It changes the dynamic of a society We speak of it as the kingdom of God, or we could use the term the community of God. One of my favorite authors uses the term the commonwealth of God. We could talk about the way of God or the way of Jesus. Something happens when we begin to function according to these interior awakenings. And it comes about the same way that it did for the prophets. We first see something. We see something, get a glimpse of what it is to live in this way. Perhaps for you or for someone that you know, it would come in the form of a glimpse of being able to imagine what life would be like without a constant voice of condemnation. Maybe the constant voice that comes from our people, maybe the constant voice that comes from our culture, Maybe it's that constant voice that comes from within our own minds. And there's this constant tearing down process. And then we get a glimpse. Something bubbles up inside of us and we begin to imagine a different way and we think it doesn't need to be this way. A wisp of divine reality captures us with a vision. Things could be different. We get a glimpse of living our days on this earth free of that voice of condemnation. Or someone with power 
receives a message of the divine, the message of God. And this voice speaks and says, lay down your power in service to another. And we who could press our advantage, we who are in a position to press our advantage, we hear this message and instead we begin to look to and consider the advantage of the other. We who could, who have the power to diminish the other as a way of expanding ourselves, instead look to enlarge the other. Or someone carrying a common, everyday, normalized focus on the concerns of self, instead graduates and graduates from this level, which is not a bad level, It is just an incomplete level. Thinking about me and my and mine is an essential part of a progression in the same way that kindergarten or first grade or high school is part of a progression. But this person graduates to seeing not just the good of me and my and mine, but seeing the good of the whole, seeing the good of the system, seeing the good for how it works out for all rather than just self. Or... A community figures out how to overcome the tragedy of the commons in a collective way, if you're familiar with that parable. Each becomes concerned for the well-being of the whole, and as such, they begin to function in a way that works for the well-being of all. Or, a church community glimpses a vision of transcending the culturally imposed divisions and alienations that characterize and affect their society. They see how they could step out of that culture, rise above the limitations that those exclusions impose, and they see how the divine heart of love could be expressed in a very real-world way, the way the divine principle of grace could be exercised in a very real-world way, and they begin to put it into practice over coffee or on the phone or with one another's kids or in their neighborhood or on their job. Or people catch a glimpse of the divine call to be peacemakers instead of anxiety makers. And on this one, let me make some parenthetical remarks and then I'll list another one or two. You may have read a post that I put on the NRCC Facebook page a while back. Once our news networks begin to broadcast 24 hours, they faced a tremendous pressure. And that pressure was to engage people for more minutes per day than previously they had had. Because it used to be that we could get our news in 30 minutes a day. Now, in order to sell all those advertising minutes, they need people to come back for more than 30 minutes. And they need people to come back and stay engaged for longer periods of time. And so, informing won't do anymore. They have to arouse and engage. Because arousal and engagement will keep people coming back. Informing won't. So, two things that arouse and engage better than just about anything are fear and sex. Now, you are, I am sure, keenly aware that advertisers use use sex to sell stuff. But I'm thinking that they use fear even more. You'll notice that we are not talking these days about an ensuing 
uh, event in our national life called enforcing fiscal discipline. We're not even using the terms that they're using in Europe to talk about this, uh, austerity measures. We're talking about plunging over a fiscal cliff. And when you think of falling over a fiscal cliff, you have images in your mind of Thelma and Louise, or you have images in your mind of a dream that you awaken from because you've been falling in that dream, or you have the, the panic that you feel when you stand near a very high place and you look over, and that arouses and that engages because it touches a point inside of us of fear. Now, that is not to say that the things that we're going to be facing won't be difficult and challenging, but it is to say that in order to keep us engaged and aroused, there is a complex out there in our society who's doing anything but peacemaking. It is doing its best to arouse and engage, and fear will do it. We live in a culture that is saturated with fear marketing, and it happens in our politics, and it happens in our economics, and it happens in our religion. Henny, penny, the sky is falling, has become what people of good sense have to think. And that, the ancient texts say, is crazy. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, to make peace in the face of anxiety. And perhaps as part of this process of the divine community unfolding, one spiritual community, perhaps ours, gets a glimpse of this divine way, this divine call to the mission of peacemaking. And this community learns how to make peace in the face of anxiety. And then this community teaches one another how to live with a peace that passes understanding. And then this community learns to do it even in the midst of troubles, even in the midst of hardships, even in the midst of the hurtful times, the painful times. And then they get a glimpse of what it would mean to carry that same peacemaking mission to their jobs and to their schools, and to their neighborhoods. So that's the way this divine reality unfolds. We get a glimpse of something different. We get a glimpse of how to use power differently. We get a glimpse of serving rather than pressing advantage. We get a glimpse of overcoming the toxic alienation and division that keeps our society apart. We get a glimpse of making peace instead of buying into anxiety. Or, finally, a group of people get a sense of how divine love applies across racial barriers and across political barriers, socioeconomic barriers, religious barriers, educational level barriers, any one of those things that divides us and keeps us apart from one another, we get an idea of how divine love applies across that barrier. Whoever the outsider is, whoever the stranger is, whoever the barbarian at the gate is, whoever it is that we think threatens us, that we get a glimpse of what it means for divine love to be manifest in that context. And catching this vision we are invited to live differently. Well, that's the way things work in this commonwealth. That's the way things work in this kingdom. That's the way things work in this community. Somebody gets a glimpse 
of how it could be. A message from God comes to us, live this way. Do that thing. The message of the God way awakens inside one of us. And that message speaks of a lofty hope, of a promise of a better way. But here's the thing. That message almost always comes with a kicker. To live this way, you're going to have to live a way that nobody else lives. And they are not going to like it when you do. To do this thing, you are going to have to do what nobody else does. And they are not going to like it when you do. To walk this path, you're going to have to walk where nobody else walks. To be in this flow, you're going to have to be out of sync with your peers. And at best, you'll be snickered at. At best, you'll be taken as irrelevant. You will be deemed pie in the sky, out of touch, idealists. That's at best. At worst, you'll be a boat rocker, a threat. And people don't like threats. You'll be an apple cart upsetter, and that will make you dangerous, and people don't like danger. You'll be a radical, or you'll be a heretic, or you'll be a troublemaker. You'll move outside the lines, and society is nothing if not a tremendous force for keeping everybody inside the lines. And so you'll be out of sync with your very society if you get a glimpse. Now, there are some times, and they do happen, in which the world that you live in is in sync with some dimension of divine light and some dimension of divine life. And when that's the case, following the divine message will work out just swimmingly for you. You will get to gain respect. You will get to be accepted. You will get even affirmation. You'll become part of the in-group, a cultural hero in your own mind and among your peers. It'll just work out well for you when your society is in sync with some dimension of divine life. But when your society is living apart from divine life and divine light, there's a couple of things that you would need to know if you're going to heed that interior message. The first thing, societies, cultures, including the culture of the church, they never know when they're living in the dark. They always think this pattern of speech is the right pattern of speech. They always think this way of doing commerce is the justifiable way of doing commerce. They always think that this way of treating people is the right way to treat people. They always think that they are justified in what they're doing, that they're supposed to be doing what they're doing. And when you come along with a message that's born of the divine life and the divine light, you're going to piss them off. You need to know that. The second thing you need to know is that boat rockers are never loved. The ancient texts are testament to the dismissal and the ridicule and the persecution and the crucifixion of those who come and live out a message that they hear from the divine voice. But you need to know that. There's always... Because of that attention in our tradition. Because we're not freaks. 
We want to be loved. Like me, you want to be affirmed. Social acceptance is important to us. Again, we're not freaks. But as important as social acceptance is, its importance always has limits in our tradition. Because we answer to a higher call than social affirmation. The divine way, the way of love, the way of grace, and the way of peace, the way of service, and the way of compassion, the way of looking out for the other just as passionately as we look out for the self, the way to which the divine message constantly calls us again and again, generation after generation, this way does not gain us social affirmation. And often it removes us from the stream of normal, takes us out of the stream of typical. In our early days, people called us Christians because we had this irrational love for one another and for the vulnerable. And so we lived at such a dimension out of sync with the culture around us that they mocked us with our love. Now we've turned that into a badge of honor, but in the beginning it was a mocking of this crazy way that we loved each other because it was so out of sync with the Roman way. And this wasteful way in which we loved the vulnerable. We even buried people that we that followed traditions we didn't believe in. And they called us Christians because of it. We've now made that a badge of honor, but it was originally mockery. So we're removed from the stream of normal removed from the stream of typical. Heeding the voice, heeding the message, hearing the messenger, usually takes us outside of the comfortable norms. It gets us disinvited from the cool kids' table. It makes our ways tougher. It makes our lives harder. The way of hope, the way of Jesus is often the way of the outcast. The way of hope, the way of Jesus, is often the way of the outsider. It is the way of the lone voice. It is the way of the troublemaker. And it is very rare that the way of hope is the way of convenience. It is very rare that the way of hope is the way of an enlarged reputation. It is very rare that the way of hope is the way of the mainstream. If you look at our sacred texts, if you look through our history, the followers of Jesus have been outsiders. And it started that way even before Jesus. It started that way with his mom. She began the journey as an outcast. She began the journey by listening to the divine moment and doing so at the expense of her own reputation. She began this way at the expense of her own comfort, and she began her, her journey with these few precious words. Patrick, if you'd put them up on the slide. Be it unto me according to your words. In this story that we tell year after year, generation after generation, Mary's words echo deeply within us. When I read them, I hear an iteration of a prayer I often ask us as a community to pray, which is, whatever you ask, I will do. Wherever you send, I will go. Whenever I sense a truth, I will heed it. Whatever it costs, I will pay it. 
Wherever it leads, I will follow it. It's true that the community of God, the kingdom of God, is a place of hope, but it is a place very different than the societies that you and I live in. It is a place that is at odds with the society that we live in. And we must decide where our allegiance lies. Now, we Christians, we made an egregious error 1,700 years ago. We joined forces with the empire of Rome. We joined the cool kids' table. We joined power. And when we did, we liked it. We really liked it. Because power feels good. Power feels great. Being the insider feels wonderful. And having the power to tell other people that they are the outsiders makes us feel elevated. That just feels great. And we wanted to keep those good feelings coming. And so in order to keep those good feelings coming, we fudged just a little bit on the message of Jesus. We did it in order to accommodate the needs of the empire. We did it in order to accommodate the needs of the government. We did it so that we could be in there with them because I'm sure we told the story to ourselves, we can do more from the inside. We can influence being insiders. And so our prayer changed and it became, whatever you ask, we can probably do better with tax money. Wherever you send, we can probably get to better on Roman roads. Whatever it costs, we will be able to pay better if we are prospering. Whatever, wherever you lead, we will follow. And listen, we'll be able to bring the whole empire along with us. Do you see the great advantage that is? Or, to put it another way, be it unto me, according to your words, as long as my family planning can be a little more conventional. As long as this will work out for me. Hope is within us. That's what our ancient prophets tell us. Hope for an awakened experience of the divine, it is ours to have. Hope is within us for healthier souls, healthier relationships, restored families that have been broken, restored relationships that have been broken. Hope is within us for a community that flourishes. Hope is within us for a world in which the barriers between us and them begin to break down. Hope is within us for working together for the good of the whole system, not just for me and my and mine. Hope simply is because hope is of God and the divine spirit is within us. All that is true. True, but you need to know that hope will cost, and hope costs dearly. And it particularly costs those who are in the vanguard. And that's exactly what we in our tradition are asked to do. We're asked to be the vanguard of a different way. After Thanksgiving, Denise and I took some days off, and while we did, I was reading a book, a novel about the Oregon Trail. It was about the first group that went in 1843, and as they were getting their way through the Blue Mountains, they came across this section that just was impassable because of forest. 
So they had to go out there with axes and they had to chop down trees and they had to move through these, this very limited distance, less than two miles. But it took them weeks and weeks and weeks to get through it, chopping down trees, chopping down trees, moving their wagons forward. The next year, another group came along them, behind them and did what they did in months, in days. It's always costly for the vanguard. And we in our tradition have been asked to be just that. To hear the message. To discern the messenger. To get the glimpse. And then to go out and make that so. And when we do, it always costs those who blaze a trail a steep price. It costs us becoming outsiders. It costs us being out of sync It costs us being rejected and different and unnormal. A peculiar people, Peter called us. Men and women of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And yet, all the way back to the beginning, going back to our beginnings with Abraham and coming through Jacob and coming through the kings and coming through the prophets and coming to Jesus and coming to Paul and coming to the saints who have come since then, again and again and again, our tradition invites us back to this mission to press forward and give ourselves in service to hope, eyes wide open to the cost that will exact of us. And so my prayer this Advent is that you will be aroused and that you will be engaged. But it will be to go to your small patch of this earth and establish a beachhead for the way of God. And establish a beachhead for the community of God. When Jesus told us to be salt and light, it challenges everything that we know about the Christian life. Because the Christian life has been taught to us to huddle together, to keep ourselves safe safe until the day we get whisked away and taken off to our true home in heaven. That's not what salt does. What salt does is it goes out and it takes the earth and brings it away from rottenness and brings it into preservation. Light goes out into darkness and it brings light. And that is our mission in our tradition. And this is what we do when we come to Advent and we retell our story as we remind ourselves of the bedrock truths upon which our tradition lies. And that is this. You are called to a mission to go out and to take the message of hope and of life and of light into that small patch of earth that is yours to influence. And in so doing, you will become an outcast. And in so doing, you will be an outsider. And in so doing, you will be out of sync. That's what it costs the vanguard. And that is what it means to be a Christian. And so I encourage you to walk the way of hope and the way of life and the way of love and the way of kindness and the way of service and the way of peacemaking. I encourage you to walk that way. And I tell you that it will cost you. Spirit of God, may it be so among us that we are Christians and that we follow in this tradition and we take up for our generation and for our city and for our schools and for our 
workplaces and for our families and for our neighborhoods what it means to go cross-grain to everyone else's expectations, to go cross-grain to the empire, to go cross-grain to the unspoken assumptions about how to live, how to be at the cool kids' table. Be that so among us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.